Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? This is the time for the Slate Plus segment of the show. And for the Slate Plus segment of the show today, we're going to do a Q&A with our audience here at the Warner Theater. And so we will start with you, sir, over there. Uh, hi. Um, just continuing this thread of the uh, idealism of marriage, um, this maybe isn't the most appropriate question to kick off a political oh, Q&A, but can't wait. Uh, last week you were looking for um, better polling data on couples who go to sleep at the same time <laughs> or don't. Um, and I think you have a bunch of people here hanging out who might be able to help you with that. Okay. Yeah, yeah good idea. Wait, John, you, we, save your answer because you have it. Didn't you poll it? I, on, I, I'm just going to call that up after okay. we do but let's our. Pull okay. the room all right, so, so we're going to we poll the audience here, and we're going to poll the audience. So the first, so if you are in a couple, you should respond here and respond honestly. The first set will be people who fall asleep with their significant other and go to, go to bed at the same time. The second will be people who fall asleep at different times, go to bed separately. And so you'll make your noise audibly. So first, who falls asleep with their significant other? <laughs> second, who falls asleep separately at a different time from their significant other? Slight, even. I would say slightly towards the non, towards yeah. the atemporality. What, right. did, what, what, did you, what did you find, John? So I, um, I asked, <laughs> I went to Twitter, the uh, source of all normal people, um, <laughs> and I said, uh, I just want to, I'm going to read what I wrote just in, in terms of having scientific uh, clarity. clarity and uh, rigidity. And uh, do you go to bed at the. First answer is same time as spouse. I couldn't say spouse, significant other, et cetera, because of the limit. Anyway, same time as spouse, and then not same time as spouse. Same time as spouse came in at 42%, which means not same time as spouse came in at 58%. So that's, that seems true. That yeah, yeah, that seems roughly reflected in that's the like, audience here. That's a Clinton-Trump race there. That was a good question. Thank you. Next question over here. Go back to the first comment about the police shootings. I think one of the things that got missed was the fact that these people were actually killed because they were had guns. And I was wondering, do you think that, especially the guy in Minnesota, Philando Castile, do you think that the NRA or the right might try and make inroads into the black community with people because it's the police and the government, which the NRA says is what we're trying to protect ourselves against, and the police killing people, and the fact that this person was killed, if the reports are correct, for actually legally owning a handgun. Do you think that there might try and make an alliance with them, or what do you think of that? Um, so it was very noticeable that the NRA did not speak out right away about those shootings. The NRA said, we're going to wait and see what the facts are. And then after the Dallas shootings, they did right away speak out. And I think that they, you know, the history of gun control legislation in the United States is that when black people were arming themselves in the 60s and there was a lot of white fear about black militant groups, there was a lot of more white support for gun control. And so there's a racial divide here that I fear is still present and affects the politics of the NRA. And I 
you know, the NRA could have taken that opportunity and clearly decided that um, its loyalties lay elsewhere, that the political price for expressing that kind of allegiance was not a price it wanted to pay. It was, to me, a kind of noticeable absence of uh, expressing those um, opinions and, and taking that kind of stand. One development also along these lines that I was surprised didn't get more coverage was that the mayor... Um, and then I think now the police chief in Dallas said basically the job, it, it was harder to catch the sniper because of the people who had um, AR-15 style weapons at the... Um, and didn't they also kind of go out of their way to say, hey, and none of those people who are carrying stopped that sniper and that was not, you know, part of yeah, the... I'm so, I, yeah. Over here. Thank you. I have a question about the psychology of Senator Sanders supporters. We... <laughs> Almost a portion of them. We, uh, I feel like for the past year, we've heard a lot about what drives Trump supporters, and are they racist or xenophobic or disaffected white men, whatever. But when Senator Sanders endorsed Secretary Clinton this week, there was this minority that walked out of it when he actually endorsed her. There's been a lot of talk on social media and the progressive blogosphere about you know, uh, Senator Sanders supporters not voting for Secretary Clinton, but voting for, it seems like 50% the Green Party, 50% the Libertarian Party. And obviously there's a great divide in terms of actual ideology of all these different candidates, but they don't seem concerned with sticking to Senator Sanders' ideology. They'll kind of go for whatever else. So what's kind of driving them? What's kind of, and is there any chance that they could be reached by one of the mainstream candidates, Clinton or Trump? That's a great question. I, I don't, well, first of all, we don't know quite how big they are. They were smaller in polls than the anti-Obama group of Hillary Clinton voters. So they may not be that big. You're always going to have... they might be more committed. We don't know about that part. Because in the end, the anti-Obama Clinton supporters sort of faded away. Yeah, that's right. They might be... But they might be smaller and more committed, which wouldn't surprise you, really. Um, Sort of fitting with the times, too. Yeah. So that's the part about feeling like this... Fitting... Like hating the system, and she is more... She is more... A, a symbol of the system than than Donald Trump even, but and also if you put your heart and soul into and th- they clearly did into a belief about Bernie Sanders, like the this you cannot find a ten second uh, spouse in this instance. Like it's their their commitment is deeper than that, and so it's a contravention of their beliefs to vote for somebody who falls short of that ideal. Because what's always struck me, or I've always thought, is that. Holding those beliefs as strongly as people do, nevertheless, when they're presented with the end of the line choice about the things that will change when a candidate, um, in this case Donald Trump, would affect policy in a way that would, you know, because they care about things, they at the end of the day they care about policy. So they, I just wonder how big that group is really. So I don't know about much about the psychology other than they really believe what they believe, but I also wonder about how big they are. Mike upstairs guy, for the policy wonks out there who one day want to follow in the footsteps that you've all led into political journalism. Um, any advice? Well, I, I mean, I think for policy wonks who want to go into actually making policy, I have no advice. But for policy wonks who are interested in journalism, I think we're in a golden age. And, and I would give all credit or much of the credit to Ezra Klein and Matt Iglesias over at Vox. Um, because I think what... What Vox is doing, and lots of people are following, is is creating um, a market at, for journalism which is goes deep on policy questions. It's kind of ironic that we're at this time when there's actually no policy being made, and yet there has never been better, smarter journalistic writing about it. So if only the public 
public listening public could then translate that into legislative action. And it's not just old. on the left, too. I mean, it's the, not just on yeah. the left. Yeah, Yuval Levine uh, yeah. on, on the right, among others. So it's it's um, it's a great time. And and you you there's this what's happening is there's there's journalistic outlets, and then there are all these foundations which are funding journalistic work around this. Probably half of you work for such foundations. So, so I think it, 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 is a, it is a great, grand, glorious age to do journalism about policy, and, and um, so go do it. Can I be a little more concrete? I think master an area that you are deeply interested in. Don't fake it. Don't pick something because you think it'll sell. Pick something that you really care about and can spend endless amount of time reading and doing interviews and reporting about. And then figure out how to get really good at explaining it. And you can read Vox or listen to the weeds or um, you know look at these other outlets that are doing the same kind of work and, and kind of inhale that model. I always tell people who are um, especially trying to freelance that you can only do that successfully for a publication that you actually already read because it'll kind of, through osmosis, you'll know how to do it. Um, my, my most failed freelance assignments have been for magazines that I hadn't read. It doesn't work very well. Also, right. you, can, you can jump between the two. Dan Diamond just wrote a piece in Politico about the Affordable Care Act. GabFest listener, Dan yeah, Diamond. Yes, GabFest listener, um, who was more... Um, you know, so he was in a more policy-ish job before jumping all the way over to pure journalism. So you can go back and forth. Um, so we're going to do last two questions, one here, and then we'll finish over there. So I'm sorry to everybody. I'm sorry. To, I'm sorry. Sorry. You, um, with reference to 1968 and the present moment, the differences, um, I was only 11 in 68, but it feels different. And the, the biggest difference seems to be this idea that the system is rigged. And one thing I didn't hear in your discussion of it was the role that technology plays. Um, you know, social media, internet, uh, podcasts, that type of thing. So I, I'd be curious as to the impact of it now. And say those things had been in 68, might it have been different? I mean, I think social media amplifies part the partisan divide. It makes it feel like everyone's screaming all the time. That's somehow what my Twitter feed feels like to me. And in 68, the system is rigged was more a phrase that African Americans used because, in fact, the system was deeply rigged against them. Um, and so it's interesting to see the transition of that idea and concept and language um, kind of migrate into mainstream white people land. Last question. Thank you. Kind of on the Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton debate, a lot of people kind of equate Trump and Clinton in the same level. And so some of them are saying they're just not going to vote at all. And so I'm wondering sort of if the Republican Party with Trump and the Democratic Party with Clinton are going to have a hard time in getting out the vote. So we'll see actually lower voter turnout or we'll see higher voter turnout because you, it's easier to vote against someone than for someone, sort of. So I'm wondering what you all think on that term. So, so thank you. I think I'll give Go. one dumb answer, and then you can give the sophisticated answer, John. <laughs> which is that it, it seemed one thing which hasn't much been discussed, but but I was talking to Sasha Eisenberg, who writes a lot about voter turnout and the mechanisms of actual campaigning, and he points out that that the Trump campaign is just awful at the the basics of getting people out to vote. So I think one one part that we may not. Uh, the, the Republicans may indeed have a lot of animus towards Hillary, and that might motivate them to vote, but there is the, the, the actual infrastructure for getting people to vote 
isn't very strong in this campaign in particular, and they're still behind, and Trump magnifies that. And, and I suspect the Democrats are better at that um, and will be better at that. Well, that's why when I did the, um, you know, the if you were a Hillary case, voter case, the, the fact that, that, you know, when I said she, she believes in the mechanisms of voter turnout, that's what I meant, which is that they believe in the, all of the science behind getting people out, the number of contacts you have to get based on a person's level of, of interest. And Trump doesn't really believe in that. He believes in basically just the, the rallies approach. Um, and we'll see if that turns out. I was just looking up here. Basically, right now, I don't have the number, but um, Pew had a poll from, let's see, what is this, the 7th. So last week, high interest and high disappointment among the public. Lots of people are interested, but they're also hugely disappointed in the choices. And that feels like, to me, a recipe for a lot of people just going, Ugh, I'm just not going to go show up at all which puts a greater emphasis or an importance on the turning out of your own voters. So I don't know what that means for the total number. So I don't know. Ask me in November after the election's over. After the election. We'll have a definitive answer after the election. Thank you so much for coming out tonight to the Warner Theater. <laughs>